HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. The great state of Wisconsin is home to the only master cheesemaking program outside of Switzerland. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, a podcast at the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Master Spice Blender, Lior Lev Sarkars. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Lior about the art of blending spices, the secrets to cooking with them. And we'll hear Lior's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, in our first segment, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Usually, when you think of Julia's recipes, you don't immediately think spices. However, a closer look reveals Julia knew the value of using spices in the right way, with the right intensity, and in the right combinations, if not also with the right restraint. Julia understood how spices make dishes taste the way we'd expect them to. It's It's not just ginger that makes gingerbread taste like gingerbread. The recipe relies on a blend of spices well beyond ginger to do the job. You can find Julia's appreciation for cooking with spices in her signature tome, The Way to Cook. There's a recipe for the delicious French specialty pan de pice, also known as spice bread. If you've never had a good pan de pice, you're missing out. But it's also very easy to find a mediocre one, at least in France. And for those unfamiliar, pan de pice is like a honey cake or a tea loaf, so it's not really bread. And typically, it features the signature flavors of cinnamon and ground cloves, maybe even ginger. But a pan de pice certainly lives or dies on the baker's spicing skills. The way to cook also features Julia's very own special spice mixture for pork chops, pâtés, even sausages, as well as goose and duck. And it features 10 different spices. Now, someone even more knowledgeable and passionate about spices than Julia is Lior Lev Sarkars, the founder of La Boite, a destination spice atelier in New York City. A trained chef who worked in multiple Michelin-starred kitchens, including with our friend, Chef Daniel Boulud, he eventually found his calling in the wide world of spices. Lior's third book is, aptly for this program, entitled Mastering Spice, Recipes and Techniques to Transform Your Everyday Cooking. He joins us today to enlighten us about spices and spice blending. Welcome to the podcast, Lior. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So how, let's start at the beginning. How did you become a master spice blender? Um, I never intended to become one. I um, moved to France in the late 90s to uh, attend the uh, Paul Bocuse Institute um, near Lyon. 
And as part of my training, I had the good fortune of um, working for about seven to eight months in Brittany, in Concal, with Chef Olivier Rolanger. And um, even though I've seen spices my whole life in Israel, which is where I'm from, and I've traveled quite a bit, this was a big turning point in my career, seeing this French uh, trained chef cookie, you know, uh, fine dining cuisine, using um, unfamiliar seasoning spices from all over the world. And that got me really excited about the idea of integrating spices in different types of, of foods and dishes without necessarily making them a particular ethnic dish. And from that moment on, in, I guess, 1999, um, I started studying about spices and where they're from and how to use them and the do's and the don't and how other people use them. And about, I'd say, you know, 15 years after that moment of, of me working in Concal, I um, decided to focus on this idea of, of spices and utilizing my 20-something years as a chef in Israel, then France, and then New York, and kind of move to the other side of, of the stove and, and become a vendor and, and a source um, for spices and help chefs both in um, professional kitchen as well as home kitchen become better in using everyday spices, uh, whether they're just basic ones or whether they're more elaborated. And with that, I started playing just with the idea of making my own blends and seeing what they could do. So uh, it, it's been a great journey since 2006 where La Boite was founded of really not inventing anything, but reviving this one of the oldest trade, which is the spice trade. Well, and I think that's interesting what you talked about with a, a, you've you've given your your spice um, atelier a very French name for for a reason, I think, and I think maybe that has to do with the French approach to using spices, which is a little bit different than, like you said, with the approach to ethnic cuisines when people are deliberately cooking them and they rely on these elaborate mixtures, right? The French idea is, is a lot more subtle and a lot more about they give a dish like a certain identity than they are necessarily to like zing on your palate or make your make you sweat or your sinuses clear. <laughs> is, that, is, is that kind of the approach you take to spice blending? I think, you know, it's kind of ironic that I, I started being curious about spices in France out of all places because it's not a place, like you mentioned about Julia and her cooking or other French-inspired chefs. Spices is not the first thing you'd come and look for. Um, I, I, you know, appreciate and admire the, the techniques of French cuisine and really paying attention to ingredients. And I, and I think to me what became very clear very quickly that spices should be perceived as an ingredient. It's not an afterthought. And and I think that's something that I've learned from my many years of, of living and working in France, that each and every ingredient is crucial. And um, having this outsider look at the world of spices was actually beneficial because I do not pretend to you know, be an, uh, a Korean cook or an Italian cook. I am who I am. And I'm trying to use these spices to create my own signature uh, dishes. And there's definitely something to be said about how you season. It's one thing having spices in your kitchen, but just teaching, which is something that I do quite a bit. Again, both professional chefs and home cooks. It's the pure act of how do you season something? How much of it do you put? When do you put the spice? Is it coarse? Is it fine? So uh, one big thing is sourcing the best possible spices, but the other is the, the pure functionality of how do you hold it? Do you use a shaker? Do you use your hand? Do you measure? So a lot of things to think about. And how do you approach that? Is is how individual is, is the taste of spice? I know I learned with um, color that one person might have great color perception and another may not, but that doesn't make them right because if the person perceiving the color wrong perceives it that way, well, that's the reality. Is, is that true with, with tasting spices as well? Yeah, there there is basically no other way if, if you want to use spices, and, and I hope you know all people who cook or eat uh, will be interested in it. There's no way but to taste and smell spices. The visual aspect could be tricky because, uh, well, first, I'm colorblind, so it's something that I don't even consider while I look at spices. But um, I taste and smell because if you are using spices in your food and you've never tasted them, 
you're pretty much gambling with your food. You're adding an unknown factor into a dish and you have never tasted it. So again, the idea is not to eat a jar of cinnamon or jar of coriander. <laughs> That's not a pleasant experience. However, a tiny little taste, even if you spit it out after a few seconds so that you do know if it's bitter or sour or hot or, 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 or sweet, those are all things that you want to keep in mind the same way that I would hope that cooks you know, tasted just the meat itself, the fish itself, the, the, the produce, whatnot, just so that they know how to prepare it the best possible way. So the same goes with spices. It's impossible to cook with spices without teaching yourself how to evaluate their scent and their flavor. So that's really step number one. And do you, do you find in, in sort of introducing both home cooks and I assume with professional cooks, it's more refining their use and understanding, but do because I think you've written about this or talked about this, that people sometimes have an actual like fear of using spices or reluctance to try new things or experiment. Yeah, the, 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 the point is that we, a lot of us are not born into a spice reality. Uh, <laughs> we, <laughs> we grow in, in a home where, um, you know, uh, food isn't that complicated or elaborated. We don't experience ethnic food for the most part of our lives. And, and we think that if we are going to use spices, it's all of a sudden becoming exotic and ethnic, which it's not. And um, most people around the world, I'll take a, a, a sort of a guess that they have some form of, of salt and pepper. Those are spices, at least in my world. And um, why are we abandoning all of the other hundreds and hundreds of other seasonings? Um, those are two flavor profiles that, you know, were embraced by most people, but other ones have not. And I think that if you keep on cooking or eating, because I, I joke, semi-jokingly saying that not everybody should cook. Some people should just eat. Um, <laughs> I don't know who decided that everybody can cook. I, I would argue that. But um, if um, you should definitely continue cooking and eating the things that you like and you feel comfortable with. Because a lot of times when people start adding spices, they also start adding new techniques and using other ingredients. And that's where things could go really wrong. So if if your go-to is a roast chicken or a broiled salmon or, or just a simple salad, keep on doing it because that's what you're good at and, and that's what you like to eat. But by using different seasoning each time, you're going to get uh, a complete different dish, which is part of what we're trying to do with, with the, you know, the mastering spice concept of this third book is to say, here, take a recipe learn how to make it really good so that you know the time, the temperature, the technique involved. And then you'll start using and doing it without even looking at the recipe. And then you could get creative and just change the seasoning and you'll get a complete different result. Yes. And, and just because of the foundation's mission is to teach everyone to cook or to advocate for that, I will weigh in that I think we do support your view. And Julia did too, that not everyone needs to be a gourmet chef. And that it's more about can you feed yourself with some basic dishes so that you're not reliant on, you know, processed foods or not able to fend for yourself when, you know, there's a snowstorm. But um, I think we would also endorse that people often put all this pressure on themselves to, to, to mimic professional chefs, which is just so unrealistic and then makes the whole thing fraught and daunting. Absolutely. And I, I think that even if you, you know, Everybody has basic skills, and, and I think that the um, good things that happen, thanks to Julia and many others along the way, is that the uh, the stores and the markets nowadays are, are filled with amazing produce and proteins and, and semi-prepared things where you could save a lot of the peeling and the chopping, and if you don't want to do that, and, and you could uh, assemble very easily uh, a great meal, whether it's breakfast, lunch, dinner, or a snack, and really take responsibility. So when I say jokingly that not everybody should cook, it doesn't relieve you from the responsibility of knowing what you're eating and reading the labels and knowing where it's from as much as you can um, and 
and even if you are buying a prepared dish and and I'm sure I you know if if Julia was here or on the phone she would definitely um uh, allow you to go to your favorite uh deli or or uh, traiteur or you know the catering uh and buy a prepared dish that was made by an amazing chef um that's totally fine as long as you're able to have a conversation also I think about the flavors that you taste the scents that you're smelling and identifying and not just saying I don't care for X, Y, and Z. He's saying I don't care for it because it has that flavor or that smell or, or that texture. Yes, and Julia was known for going to Costco to buy their hot dogs. So yeah. I thought maybe we could segue to how you are recommending people cook with spices and how you, you started to talk about it, the approach, because certainly Mastering Spice is, is meant to be a book right for home cooks and the curious, not just for professionals. Correct. And and one of the things that I wanted to do, and, and I hope we achieved with Mastering Spice, is to take my 20 and something years of, of knowledge as a chef and, and, and kind of sh- see how I can help people at home. Um, make cooking a fun process. First and foremost, it has to be fun. Uh, and then an easy thing. And, and um, talking about spices is, first of all, you know, uh, look around you in your kitchen or if you have a pantry and, and take everything that's spice-related and put it on the table and start evaluating what uh, needs to stay, what needs to go, what is too old, um, what you actually never used and maybe you should not buy it anymore. And from that moment on, again, start smelling and tasting and really understanding that spices are a dry produce and they should be uh, treated as such um, the same way that the produce doesn't become better with time. Your spices also have a certain shelf life. And if you're not using a lot of a certain spice, just buy small quantities and, and try to make a point to rotate your inventory or, or add spices to your shopping list uh, on a weekly or monthly basis so that they're always fresh, they're always good. And if there's still things that you don't use, just then stop buying them. And, and as you do it, you'll just become better and maybe even start playing with the idea of making your own blends at home to simplify cooking so that we you only have 5, 10, or 20 minutes to cook the, the the spice portion of it is already pre-made by you for you. And and do you find in in your own cooking because you certainly cover this in your book about um you know it's quite a personal book and about your experience becoming a father and a, a cooking with and for your family. Do you tend to rely on blends that you've mixed together much more than individual spices? Is that one of your kind of shortcuts and techniques to have? pre-made blends that you know you use in certain dishes? Yep. So absolutely, 100%. I mean, I uh, spend time every week, every couple of weeks, once a month to see uh, what blends I need. And then I make sure that I, you know, I measure them. I focus. It's to me, it's like a cooking session. I just spend time to measure the ingredients properly, toasting if needed, grinding if needed, and instead of having 25 or 30 jars of single spices, I have maybe five to six um, blends that I use on a daily basis on everything. Um, and it's ready to go. It saves me a lot of time so that I don't need to run around and look for everything. And uh, I get the best results because I really spend time making the best possible blend. And I'm not, you know, making a blend as I'm searing something or boiling something and then my attention isn't focused and it's one of the thing again that we talk with the book is why what makes one of the difference between professional chefs and home cooks it's the preparation it's the mise en place um it's all of these preparing steps and when you look at chefs like how do they do it so easily and so quickly it's because they spend a lot of time preparing having a great you know, pantry of things, having blends made, having things cut and portioned. Um, and it's something that I try um, every time when I uh, speak to home cooks is to say, if you shop properly, if you prepare everything, if you set up right, you know where everything is in your kitchen, your cooking will become much easier, a lot of fun, and, and you'll be able to spend time actually hosting or eating and cooking wouldn't be that complicated. 
Can you give us an example of one of the blends that you use quite frequently with your family? Sort of what, what you don't have to give away every secret, but, <laughs> but just, just to bring it to life of exactly like sort of what's a typical thing you use and use often and how you use it. Sure. Um, we have a blend. So keep in mind that my kids are f- a bit young. They're four and six. So their, their palate changes all the time. So I try to introduce things slowly. I, I make a blend. Uh, it's called Yemen. Um, and it has ginger and allspice and a little bit of nutmeg and cardamom and um, that the kids love. So anywhere from breakfast where I'll just sprinkle it on sliced fruit for them, apples and pears, and and or I let them do it even. And I'll, the same exact blend will go into their pancake or waffle batter they will make or sometimes in their milk for the cereal. And then, um, you know, for lunch, it could go into... Uh, a cooked vegetable, and um, it could find its way into a salad dressing, and then uh, it could be tossed with some vegetables for dinner. Um, so just that one blend, and, and obviously the baked goods, and, and something that I love doing is baking. So it will find its way into a halal that we make for their sandwiches, or to a cake, or, or a little uh, snack. So just one blend, I could, you know, in theory, just have that one blend in my kitchen, and, and be happy for the whole day without necessarily. And so instead of having, again, 10 or 12 different single spices, I have one jar with about two to three ounces on an ongoing time that just helps me make things. And not to mention that as I'm making them breakfast, I add some of that Yemen blend into my cup of coffee and it makes a delicious um, beverage for, for my breakfast. And and I think we can't forget that that also that the particularly that type of blend aromatically is really lovely to smell on a regular basis. And I, I find when I, when I use things like that, it kind of or even in the, you were talking about maybe people might be thinking, oh, it's a chore to assemble all these things in advance. But the aromatic quality of mixing spices, it's sort of like aromatherapy. It kind of lifts your mood. Oh, absolutely. I think that you know, and and then I. Um for me at least, and for many others, um, cooking and being in the kitchen is one of the happiest thing. You know, I, I often think that if people cooked more, uh, they might need to go less to see therapists. I mean, there's something very therapeutical about cooking and, and making your own food and, and being in that moment um, of feeding yourself. So there's definitely, you know, with meat and fish, it's hard to get uh, excited at first with the raw material because until you start cooking them. Uh, but with spices, you just open a jar and all of a sudden it transports you um, and it forces you in a very good way to interact with, with the content of that jar. All right, on that aromatic note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to Talk Spice with Lior. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that 90% of Wisconsin's milk is made into cheese? And this is not just any milk. When Swiss, German, and Italian cheesemakers first settled into Wisconsin, they chose their new home because of the special terroir of the region. Its soil and water are nurtured by the goodness of glacial sediment, and those elements lend themselves to the very best milk. Today, Wisconsin produces 25% of all cheeses made in the U.S., and Wisconsin cheeses have won more awards than any other state or country in the world. How did they do it? Wisconsin cheesemakers combined their heritage and tradition with nonstop innovation. They were the first state to establish cheese grade standards and the first to require that every cheese plant be overseen by a licensed cheesemaker. Wisconsin is the only place outside of Europe where one can pursue an elite master cheesemaker certification. All of these impeccably high standards mean Wisconsin produces more than 48% of the nation's specialty cheese. Welcome back. We're talking to the founder of La Boite, an artisanal spice purveyor in New York City, and master spice blender, Lior Lev Sirkars. All right, you mentioned it earlier, and I definitely wanted to talk to you about this, because as you were saying, salt and pepper have become such a standard kind of part of most recipes or even just eating if you're not cooking they're off almost always on the table and so I think they get sort of forgotten but then there's also sometimes a lot of fuss made about them on the sort of whole other opposite end of the spectrum so I wanted to know from you is is it worth making a fuss over what kind of you know salt and pepper you use or are they all created equal 
uh, it's definitely worth making, I don't know about a fuss, but at least <laughs> giving some some thought about what salt and what pepper you have. I, uh, you know, most recipes, and uh, I have not read all of Julia's recipes, but a lot of books and will usually end with that famous phrase, season to taste with salt and pepper, which I find a bit strange. And I, I don't know that I will be the one changing it, but I would love to change it to say season to taste with sodium and heat. And um, because salinity is important and heat is important, but why are we forgetting acidity and bitterness and sweetness? Those are also important flavors. Um, I love salt, I love pepper, but saying I need salt and I need pepper, um, it's not enough, at least in my world. It's the ability of saying I need salt. Okay, do you want a a salt that's very rich on iodine? Uh, such as an unrefined gray salt with really that ocean scent and flavor? Um, or do you prefer something that's much more neutral in scent and dissolves very quickly so it's a much finer crystal? Um, so I invite uh, cooks uh, to really spend time and in, in buying different types of salt from different purveyors, different size of crystals, and, and spend five to ten minutes just doing a quick salt tasting and, and seeing what works best for them. Um, and the same goes for pepper. Um, you don't have to have pepper in your kitchen if that's not your thing, and perhaps you prefer heat to come from a chili, uh, whether fresh or dry, that's totally fine. Maybe you just like to use hot sauce, and that's totally okay in my world again. Uh, there's also certain spices that deliver some sort of a heat factor, such as you mentioned ginger earlier, uh, if you use a, a certain amount of ginger, it does give it some sort of a heat factor, um, but it's a heat that a lot of people who cannot stand chili and pepper could actually use, or mustard seeds. Um, my dear wife could not eat even the tiniest amount of chili or black pepper, however, is addicted to mustard. So it's to me, was a very interesting turning point as I was learning about spices and food, how uh, different people perceive different types of heat. And at the end of the day, um, I think that Julio, again, will definitely, you rarely cook for yourself. And it's, it's important to understand that even what you think is salty or hot might not be the same for others. So it's very important to also teach yourself what you uh, taste and smell and how do others perceive it so that you know that you perhaps tend to oversalt or overseason certain things and maybe you should tone it down or on the contrary, things that you think are really seasoned, uh, other people cannot even uh, taste them. So it's something that also a lot of home cooks will benefit if they are able to teach themselves um, what is kind of their threshold for certain flavors and seasonings. And in the book, you talk about very specific um, varieties of, of peppercorns and, and where they come from. And I just thought we should touch on that about the, the importance or, you know, with with spices in particular, does where they come from and where they're grown, I know you've been getting sort of deep into this, but it does does that terroir or that single origin or all these sort of um, in terms, is that meaningful when it comes to spices? Absolutely. So taking it to the salt and pepper, I mean, um, it really depends where they're harvested. So the salt is harvested. So that will make the pepper is the same thing. You can have three or four black peppercorns that look pretty much the same um, at first. Uh, the fact that they grow on different soils in different countries or even different harvest seasons will definitely impact the amount of heat, the amount of fruitiness, the amount of, of sweetness. And, and it sounds weird at first to talk about a fruity and, and, and a sweet peppercorn, but there are some, uh, not to mention that uh, if you use uh, unripe green peppercorn, you get something completely different. And if you use a late harvest red peppercorn, not to be confused with the pink peppercorn, which isn't a peppercorn at all, um, <laughs> those are all of the things that are important. And, and again, I, my goal is to start at, from, from the beginning and saying, okay, if you just have you know, salt, pepper, maybe a paprika, maybe a coriander in your kitchen, that's great. That's fantastic. 
uh, and I don't even care if they're ground or whole, as long as you use them. But do please try to buy the best possible quality that you can around you, whether it's your local market, whether you go online, which is okay, uh, because maybe the, the store next to you just doesn't carry it. Teach yourself what can be a better spice, because why would you season great ingredients, great protein, great produce with mediocre spices? And we see it every week, nearly every day, people who finally have this aha moment is like, what have I been doing before? And even though you think you're paying a lot more money, you're going to use less of that spice because it's so strong and pungent. So so I, I think in a nutshell, you're saying that basically the higher quality and the more care go into the production, just like we've talked about on this program with like uh, beef or um, chicken or or other even um, produce, that that translates into the, 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 the a better tasting or, or, or more rich and nuanced spice. Yep. You should definitely invest the same amount of money and attention um, as you do with all of your other ingredients in the kitchen to your spices and, and stay away from discounted things and, and all of these bargains and deals. And I don't know, I'm not a fan of that. You wouldn't buy, you know, uh, an expired piece of fish and meat and save, you know, I hope at least you wouldn't. Um, so don't do the same, I mean, uh, with, with spices. Okay, so when I was looking at Julia's special spice mixture, um, in full disclaimer, it actually includes plenty of dried herbs. I think it's actually only half technically spices. But so I wanted to ask you to kind of comment <laughs> on when herbs are dried, do they become spices? So, you know, I, as I said, I started in, in 2006, this idea of what now is La Boite. And quite quickly, I started getting questions about, so what's the story between herbs and spices? And I honestly didn't know, you know, and, and I started reading and at some point, I stopped reading as I do often because I don't want to be influenced. And I def I started my own definition that I invite people if they want to to join. To me, everything that is dry that I could use to season my food, and when I say food, it's sweet, savory, or it's beverage. Everything that I could use to season that is dry in my book, in my in my life, is a spice. So that is puts into that category the obvious spices as we know them, but also the dried herbs, but also rhizomes and berries and dried cheese and dried vinegar. Um, in my world, coffee beans are a spice. Um, it's definitely not the definition of, of the dictionary, but but that's okay. That's just my own. Um, relating to, to dried herbs and herbs generally, I know that there's a lot of people like, uh, you know, I would only use fresh herbs because I have a garden and... They don't fulfill the same function. And I love fresh herbs. I think my rule at least is that I use fresh herbs right now, um, right away. If I'm planning on cooking something and serve it later, I will use dried herbs because they uh, don't spoil um, and they retain their color and texture much longer. And I think dried herbs also hold to much higher temperature cooking so that they, even if they char on a grill or in the oven, they don't develop the bitterness that um, fresh herbs will do. And, and, and funny enough, sometimes dried herbs are superior to a lot of the fresh ones. Uh, there's no water content, so you're really getting the essence of the actual herb without the water aspect of it. Let alone that you know you have um, you have them on an ongoing basis. You don't need to worry if something goes uh, right and wrong. And one of my examples is, you know, the Luberon area in France that's known for its lush fields of, of lavender and basil and these all of these beautiful produce. And one of the things that they're known for around the world is Herbe de Provence, which is a dry uh, mix of, of different spices and herbs because they too, you know, understood the, the, the value of drying those amazing herbs and capturing the essence of them. Yeah, and presumably they're drying the herbs at the sort of peak of their season where they'll have that 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 strongest essence that they will have, which then can then be translated into the other seasons when, when they're not essentially fresh, even if they might grow technically all year round. Absolutely. So talk to me about garlic slices. I was quite fascinated with um, that. I, I hadn't really seen that in, in any other book. And excuse the expression, your book is peppered with them. So <laughs> as a kind of secret ingredient. So so 
talk to us about garlic space slices because how do you make them and 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 what's what's the the nuance and effect that, that you really like them for sure i only discovered um dry garlic or sliced garlic um mainly when i moved to the u.s in 2002 uh growing up in israel it's mainly fresh garlic uh definitely in france you know where it's you know you peel it and you this and all of the dancing around it and then i i came to the u.s and and i've learned a lot um at first, it was pretty mediocre uh, granulated garlic or garlic powder. And I stumbled upon as part of my research, and I found these beautiful sliced garlic. And all of a sudden, it's, it was a completely different world. It's, it's basically a fresh, great garlic that's harvested, dried as quickly as possible in, in slices, slightly toasted, uh, so it, it dries quicker. Um, no water content, amazing flavor. It's, I, I joked, I say it's it's garlic on steroids because you get a, a more garlic than garlic. Um, you don't have to worry uh, if it's you know there for a week, ten days, or, or six months. It's not going to go anywhere. Um, and you could use it as is, the whole slices. It adds great flavor. Uh, it holds to much higher temperatures. And the cooks that are listening um, would know that they most likely burned garlic once or twice and <laughs> yeah. it's it's an unpleasant taste uh with the dry garlic you have uh way more flexibility the interesting thing about it is that as you cook with those dried sliced garlic they absorb a lot of the liquids from the cooking and so they a rehydrate and develop this kind of nice bite as if it was a fresh garlic but at the same time they also help to thicken some of these pan sauces and some of the braising dishes which is something that was also fascinating to me is the idea of, of concentration and, and thickening sauces by using spices because they absorb a lot of the liquids from the cooking process. So I'm a huge fan, as you mentioned, the book is has garlic everywhere. Um, I would prefer using the sliced garlic versus buying pre-made garlic powder. There are less nice people out there that will grind the skin and the roots into your garlic powder. I would like to have full control over my um, garlic powder if I choose to grind it into powder. So when I buy bags or boxes of, of garlic, I know that it's just garlic slices. There's no roots, no skins, no whatever is there uh, in the field. And that's why a lot of the garlic powder or granulated garlic could have this slightly nasty um, bitterness and aftertaste. It's because of there's parts of the garlic that shouldn't be in that mix. And the garlic slices that you do you make them yourself or you actually procure no. them because they need to be made in a sort of big oven or something? So, I mean, if, if you want to try, you definitely can uh, very carefully thinly slicing fresh garlic and then drying them on a cookie rack or, or uh, in a dehydrator. And nowadays, a lot of people even have those in their home kitchen. Um, I buy mine. Obviously, we buy, you know, a few thousand pounds a year. Uh, I wouldn't even start playing with the idea of drying my own garlic. Um, I do actually invite a lot of people, uh, you know, when you go to the green market or, or if you grow your own herbs and things like that, um, and you have just too much of it, it's very easy to make your own dry basil and parsley and cilantro and tarragon just by uh, placing the herbs on a cookie rack, on a tray, uh, in the oven, on low temperature or just outside if the climate is dry enough. And you can make your own. You know, chilies also dry pretty well. Um, but that's pretty much the extent of it. I wouldn't start drying, you know, ginger and, and, and turmeric. That could take quite some time until you get a good dry result. And sometimes they'll even spoil. Well, well let's, I was going to ask you to explain a little bit more about um, your atelier, uh, La Boite. And so maybe as a segue to that, you could talk about, so are you buying then... Gar garlic slices that are dried and made by a garlic producer in some part of the country or how do you how do you how does it go from being grown as garlic bulbs to la boite so we have um just on a quick side we have two facilities we have la boite the store where we uh pack a lot of our products we also make our cookies and it acts as a store uh, where people are welcome to come and we have um the Spice Lab, which is um, a few blocks down from there, where we receive all the large-scale shipments from around the world, I should say, to your point. Mm -hmm. um, the United States grow 
a very small, insignificant, sadly, amount of spices. Um, I am one of the people who hope this will change over the years. We still rely on countries such as um, India, China, Indonesia, Vietnam, Turkey, all great places with great products. But I think there is a way for us in the United States to grow more of the spices we consume so that we have better control, we have access just faster to these products. Um, the closest growing region to us will be Canada, which is the largest grower in the world of mustard and coriander seeds. Um, so that's kind of nice where we can get it mm. fairly quickly. Um, there is a little bit of sesame growing in the U.S. There's a little bit of garlic in California and onion, just not enough. And since I, you know, as La Boite, which is a fairly small company, we are competing with a large-scale industry who needs all of these things for their uh, potato chips and other dishes. Um, we don't always get first pick when it comes to these things. Um but yeah, it's it's we import them already toasted and sliced uh, in you know uh, fifty pound uh, boxes. Um, it's not something that I would ever be able, I think, to do. The same with that drying herbs. We make a point to buy everything that we can whole, so that we can grind it ourselves. Uh, we make a point to know where it's from and whether it was treated and if it was treated, how it was treated so that we just have uh, all of the information that we need so that we can later on pass it to our uh, customers. And do you want to talk about, so not only are those sort of the raw, sort of custom packaged and sourced um, spices that you sell, but right, you sell your own blends and you can custom create blends, no? Correct. So um, we started with only spice blends. And um, as um, the years went by, we also started offering single spices. Today, we uh, offer close to 100 different spice blends and about 100 and something single spices. The blends are all my own recipes um, that I made over the years. I'm very happy to say that uh, more than half of them were made in collaboration with our uh, partners, chefs, pastry chefs, beer brewers and distillers and whatnot, uh, working on a specific project. The one thing that they all have in common is that they don't have a specific recipe or, or usage that we recommend. We really invite um, the home cook or the professional to take that spice blend. Uh, I would prefer not necessarily to tell you why I made it, and I would like for you to try it with everything that you are preparing in your kitchen, even if it's just a teaspoon or a spoonful, um, because oftentimes the things that you thought you didn't like, you actually do like, and it really depends how you apply the spice blend, whether it's hot or cold or raw, um, and it makes a huge difference, and we see it again on a, on a daily, weekly basis, uh, how a spice blend that somebody purchased to make uh, a roast fish They'll come back the week after and tell me how their chocolate chip cookies were the best that they've <laughs> ever made with what they thought would be the ideal fish seasoning. And, um, and, and that makes me very, very happy because um, at the end of the day, spices and spice blends, it, it's a working tool. It's something that you need to have in your kitchen to make food uh, taste better. And um, they don't... Uh, take away from the ingredient itself. On the contrary, they'll just accessorize it or take it to a different place. I think that's excellent advice and guidance. So how have you been spicing up your cooking? Do you have a favorite spe special spice blender concoction of your own? We want to know. So does Lior. Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. After the break, Lior reveals his Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. Our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame, who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe. Taste and imbibe to your heart's content, and bid on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. 
Tickets available now at heritageradionetwork.org slash gala. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. Lior, what's your Julia Moment? So I should say that sadly I have not met Julia, although I uh, moved to New York in 2002 and theoretically I could have. Um, And uh, I did not, sadly. I should say in all transparency that I had no idea who Julia Child was until I moved to the United States. I I started from a young age, thanks to my father's advice, who said you should either lie all the time or just tell the truth all the time. (laughs) You should just stick with one thing. It's easier to know. Um, So I'm very honest. I had no idea who Julia Child was. Um, She, uh, I must say, in Israel at least, wasn't part of, you know, a thing. and so I moved here, and I, I, as you mentioned earlier, I, I worked with Danielle Boulou at, at Restaurant Danielle. And uh, I think on one of the first days of me roaming around the hallways or, or even going up to Danielle's office, um, I saw a picture of, of Danielle with this woman who, who seemed bigger than life. Um, and asked somebody who that, and they gave me that look. I said, you don't know who Julia Child is? And I said, I have no idea who she is. Should I know? And um, and they said, yes, you should. And, and that's where I basically started, you know, reading and, and whether online and looking at some cookbooks which were available and, and definitely watching um, some of, of the, the videos uh, that are out there. And I was really, I got to say, blown away by this charismatic theatrical performance i mean without even going to the cooking first of all i mean i was so <laughs> blown away by the the, the uh, presence that she had and and really bigger than life and um and i was really uh fascinated with with uh julia's personality and then when i started reading the recipes and the stories and and really educating myself i developed so much love and and respect for what she's done for our amazing profession uh, in her own unique way. And from that moment on, I mean, it's definitely been a very inspiring journey. And um, there are few people that when I cook or when I think of something, when I plan something, I always pause and I was like, what would they do? You know, and something that I ask, and, and, and Julia is definitely part of that very short list of people. Um, when I try to sometimes overcomplicate things and make things, are like, wait, you know, if, if she was here or if she was coming to dinner, if we, you know, and, and I, one of my biggest regrets is that we, A, never met and B, never cooked together. Um, what would she have said? And I think having, and, and we've never met, but I would like to think that, uh, she would have no filters and would tell me right away that it either really suck or it's really good, um, and and it's great. And I and I wish we had more of that in in our uh, world nowadays, where people try to please you or be polite or, or too much. It's this uh, openness and 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 the simplicity, and it's something that uh, about her and her cooking and the books and everything that I uh, really love. And I I work very hard on myself is to keep it simple. Because at the end of the day, that's all that matters. It's that one or two ingredients, how they're prepared, who are you serving it to, and 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 if you do it with the right intentions, it it's that's all you need basically. And and all of that based on her great knowledge, because she just wasn't whipping things for the sake of throwing three things in a bowl and calling it a dish. It was based on a lot of studies and research and. Um, and her joy of also yeah, discovering things and eating. So all of these things together are things that ins- have and still inspired me very much as, as I progress in, in whatever I do, both as uh, a spice person and also as a cook. Uh, I still cook um, uh, a lot, whether it's at home or at events around. 
which kind of, I think, sets La Boite apart from other spice vendors. We're not just a spice vendor. We, we happen to deal with spices, but we do it for a culinary uh, purpose. We're there to help people make better food. Well, all things I think Julia would very much have appreciated, and she probably would have spent hours and hours with you at La Boite asking you 10,000 questions. And I think also your encapsulation, even not having met her, of of what she embodied as as a curious cook and a teacher is, is there in everything you said. So I, I thank you very much for that and very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me again. It was great. A pleasure. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you want to enter Lior's Spiced Up World, check out at Laboite on Instagram and at Laboite NY on Twitter. It's L-A-B-O-I-T-E and then add NY on Twitter. It's at L-A underscore Boite on Instagram. And of course, we're at Julia Child on Facebook or at Julia Child Foundation, all one word, on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T. Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N on Twitter. The new book is Mastering Spice, Recipes and Techniques to Transform Your Everyday Cooking by Lior Lev Sarkars with Genevieve Coe and beautiful photographs by Thomas Schauer, published by Clarkson Potter. Ask for it at your favorite online or bricks and mortar bookseller. And if you're inspired to spice up your cooking and or on the hunt for just the right splice, spice blends, please check out LaBoiteNY.com. That's uh, Lior's online store. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network. Today it's Jeet. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. Please give us a review. It really does help new listeners discover the show. If you can do it on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, that helps all the more. We are on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, Downloads available soon after, wherever you get your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.